Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Like Andrew said, tomorrow is Halloween. For some, the holiday is about costumes and candy, and that's it. And so some also will call it harvest. For me, and you don't have to be me, okay? I like to use the opportunity to celebrate the Reformation. Because, of course, on October the 31st in 1517, that was the day when the reformer, the German, Martin Luther, took his 95 theses, his objections against abuses in the Roman Catholic Church, and nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg, where he was a professor, which we consider a formal marking of the beginning of the Reformation. So it's a Reformation day for me that's also fitting because the motto of the Reformation was, in Latin, post tenebras lux, meaning after darkness light. So a dark holiday is a great opportunity to remember the light of the gospel that God has brought into the world and into the Western world has set free through the Reformation. But let's be honest that for most people, Halloween is about evil. It is about moral evils. The things celebrated are witchcraft, murder, sexual immorality, the occult. Halloween is typically a celebration of natural evils, death, violence. That's why you have gravestones and spiders and so forth, skeletons. It is, if you think about it for just a second, a little bit strange to have a holiday like this, because if you think about all of the other holidays in the United States, even holidays not made by Christians necessarily, but if you just think of any of the other holidays, without exception to my mind, they're all celebrating things we would agree are good. <laughs> Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. At Easter, we celebrate his resurrection. On Martin Luther King Day, we celebrate all that Martin Luther King represented and advancements in the country. Thanksgiving, ideally, we are celebrating surviving the winter for some of the early American settlers. Independence Day, we're celebrating national independence. Valentine's Day, we're celebrating love. Halloween is the only day where, by common consent, we're celebrating something that's bad. It's not any of those good things that we've listed. It's just the reverse of all of that. Now, uh, again, as I said, if to you Halloween is about the candy and the costumes, I don't have any objection to that. We like the candy, too, and the costumes. That's fine. But to go any further beyond that and to join in celebrating evil, especially the moral evil, the natural evil, maybe there's some flexibility, but the moral evil, I think Scripture counsels us this way, quote, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I think that probably Halloween stands as an oddity because it's uh, the world's way of coping with death and evil. Because the world doesn't have any other way to handle the tragedies that are death and sin, which wreak, wreak havoc in the world, 
than to just make light of them and sort of celebrate them, treat them as if they're insignificant when they're not. That's all that the world can do. But that's not true for us because we are children of light. Now, I'm not saying this again to encourage you to be unkind to the people around you who may be celebrating even the morally evil parts of Halloween. Please don't get up in the middle of the night and vandalize your neighbor's decorations. It's not a good idea. The world is going to be the world, sadly. But we Christians are going to be Christians, which means we're going to pray for the world, love them, share the gospel, not vandalize, not destroy. It's not what we do. But since we can't really escape our nation's desire yearly to celebrate evil, I say that we make the best use of it we can, however you do that. And I think one of the ways is that every year we are reminded at Halloween of the grotesqueness of sin and everything that sin results in. So on October 31st, what we bring out into our yards, the ugliness, the death, the evil, on the next day when we remove the decorations, we realize we're just bringing those back into our homes and back into our hearts. Those are the things that we find inside of ourselves all through the year. That's sin, and that's sin's consequence. And even if you don't put it as decorations in your yard, it's still there. Halloween is a great reminder every year that sin is ugly. It's pervasive, and it's ugly, and it results in ugly things. There's no scary movie yet that's been made that has even scratched the surface of the nature of the evil in our hearts. Sin leads to death. Sin is putrid. Sin is gross. Sin is shocking. Sin is horrendous. And above all, sin is serious. It is deadly serious. So even if we will have a celebration tomorrow around us that doesn't view sin quite that way, it is a good reminder for us as we get candy and costumes. Great. But it is a good reminder for us that sin is deadly serious. And that is what we find as we're coming now to the end of this letter. If you notice here in 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17, this is a fairly difficult passage. We'll talk about that. But the gist of it is very clear, and it's that we should take sin very seriously. So look with me, beginning here in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. He shall ask, and God, or he, will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Like I said, the gist of this passage is not in any way unclear. Sin is a very serious thing. Serious enough that, as he says here, for those committing sin not leading to death, get involved, pray, so that someone may have life. We'll talk about that. Also, sin can be serious enough that there is a sort of sin that leads to death, and John the Apostle says, don't even pray for that. Shocking, but it's supposed to be shocking. This is how we're supposed to think about sin. That's the gist of it, 
But of course, the gist is made up of details in our passage, and you may be wondering, what do the details of this passage mean? This is actually maybe the most difficult passage in this letter. So this sermon's going to be a little different than others in that what I want to do for the bulk of the passage at the beginning is present to you the two most common ways to understand these two verses. What John has given us is these two verses, and that's it. He doesn't go on any further. He hasn't said things before. It's these two verses. When he wrote it originally, we can assume that his first hearers would have known what he was talking about. But here we are 2,000 years later by God's wisdom, and it's our task to strive to understand it, even if we don't have a lot more to go on. We do have some to go on here. So what I want to present you with is the two most common ways that these two verses are often understood. And after we've done that, we can make some application. So first, the two ways this is often understood, and then we'll see the seriousness of sin as an application. So let's consider those two ways first. And by the way, there are other ways this passage could be understood. For example, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, this is one of the passages appealed to to defend the distinction between mortal and venial sins. However, I want to give all justice to anyone from that background, those are not based so much on this passage as they are on traditions, and I don't know that Catholicism would deny that because they receive sacred tradition as well, not in the Bible, and it seems like mortal venial sin really has more to do with traditions, and then passages like this come in as a secondary defense. So if we're just trying to understand this passage and we don't hold as sacred this Catholic traditions, And we're going to set that interpretation aside for now and look at the two primary ways that people have understood these verses, what they could possibly mean. Now, just as a comment getting started, you may remember that the Apostle Peter in his second letter said concerning the Scriptures, there are some things in them hard to understand. That is what the Bible says about itself. And you might wonder... Since the bulk of the Bible is actually very easy to understand, a child can understand the most important parts of the Bible, you may wonder why is it that God included any verses such as these that are hard to understand? My own opinion on the matter is that it was to teach us humility because you don't perfectly understand absolutely everything. But I do want to say that even though we're humble in coming to passages like this, we do not have the option in any difficult passage of Scripture to simply set the passage aside. It's one of the reasons we do expositional preaching verse by verse here is because if we didn't, I would never preach to you these verses. And this is the whole counsel of God, and we believe God's smarter than us, and He's given this to us. That's true of any difficult passage of Scripture. Genealogies in the Old Testament, instructions on the tabernacle, or passages hard to understand, they humble us, They remind us that God's smarter than we are, so let's just submit to that. But we cannot set any of them aside as unimportant. They're incredibly important. So with God's help and the guidance of the Spirit, we do strive to understand this passage. So let me give you the two common understandings of these verses. The first one sees the sin that leads to death as the unpardonable sin. Here's the unpardonable sin given in Mark chapter 3. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, 
which is really great news for us. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark, the gospel writer, adds this comment, quote, for they were saying, the religious leaders, Jesus has an unclean spirit. So Jesus in his earthly ministry, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was exercising demons, casting them out of tormented persons, and the religious leaders out of envy said, no, 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 he's not acting by the Holy Spirit, he's acting by Beelzebub, he's acting by the devil, he has demons within him, and that's how he's casting out other demons. Jesus has a rebuke and a rebuttal to that, which makes great sense, but one of the things he says is, he doesn't say that you've committed it yet to the religious leaders, but he says, watch out. There is a sort of sin called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that they at least were in danger of, and Jesus says of it, there is no forgiveness. One of the parallels, he says, neither in this age nor in the age to come. That's why here he calls it an eternal sin. This is what we call the unpardonable sin. Now, this is a passage that has troubled many people and maybe, probably, well, I know for a fact, some of you as well, where you have thought in your own life, have I committed the unpardonable sin? Even by accident, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Did I do that? And for 2,000 years, many Christians have been tormented by the fear that perhaps they did that or might do that. Let me just, at the outset, give you a bit of comfort and say that if you are concerned that you have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and it troubles you deeply, then you have not done it. The Holy Spirit, He's the one who convicts us of sin. If you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, He departs. There's no salvation for you. There's not a reason for the Holy Spirit to convict you of that sin if God has no intention of saving you, if that's not even a possibility. So, if you're deeply troubled, if you're deeply worried, have I committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that keeps you up at night? You're terrified. Have I done it? You haven't done it. So, I do want to give you that as a comfort. Those who commit this sin, whatever it may be, don't care that they committed this sin, at least not in any spiritual sense. But I do want to point out, too, that we're talking about a real sin. Those verses are in the Bible for a reason, and there is such a thing as an unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and someone who commits that is guilty of an eternal sin and never has forgiveness in the words of Jesus. This seems to be the same sort of sin that's involved when you get to Hebrews chapter 6. Some of you have been troubled by that passage as well, so let me read it for you. In Hebrews 6, we read, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So again, here is a warning about a kind of sin where someone has been a part of the believing community, experienced remarkable things, 
We believe that they were never genuinely believers. We saw this in 1 John. They went out from us. They never were of us. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he would say to such persons who even cast out demons, I never knew you. Nevertheless, this is a real thing. There's someone who can commit a sin in the believing community, experiencing everything there is to experience there, and then has fallen away. And he says, it is impossible to renew in them repentance. And without repentance, there is no salvation. So here again, an unpardonable sin. Hebrews in chapter 12 refers to Esau, who sold his birthright. And he says, quote, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Not genuine, I'm sorry, God, but tears, I want my birthright. So this is a possibility, an unpardonable sin, in this case, apostatizing, abandoning the faith. Clearly, it doesn't refer to every person who's ever been in a believing community who's then turned away because many have returned. That might be you. Praise God. But there is a kind of sin being referred to here. So if you return to our passage in 1 John chapter 5, one of the major ways of understanding John in our passage is to say that the sin that leads to death is the unpardonable sin. It leads to death inevitably because the sin is unpardonable. And therefore, if you read this passage that way, we should pray for true believers who, quote, commit sins that do not lead to death. So non-unpardonable sins, the day-by-day sins, you pray for someone if they've committed that kind of sin that they might be restored. But those who commit sins leading to death, namely whatever the unpardonable sin may be, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or an apostasy like we see in Hebrews 6, the death in this case, he says, don't even pray for them. There's not even a reason to. It's not possible for them to repent. So Hebrews said, So if you understand the passage this way, the death being referred to is an eternal death. Not just physical, it's an eternal death. Their sin leads and cannot but lead there. And those who you pray for that they may have life refers to eternal life, restoring them in the fellowship of God. So that is the first view here. And I want you to know that I don't think that's what this passage means. If you do, let's still be friends, okay? It's not a mark of orthodoxy. But that is one way to understand this. But I don't think that's what this passage is saying. This leads us to the second major way to understand this passage. Let me tell you why I don't think that first understanding is correct. If you just look at the beginning of our passage, he says, If anyone sees... And that assumes that here you are and you're looking and someone has committed a sin that you can see. So we can't be talking about vague, fuzzy sins that nobody knows about. This has to be clear enough for you to see, oh, he committed a sin that doesn't lead to death. Therefore, I will pray for that person. On the other hand, you have to be able to see the person's sin in such a way that you know that the sin leads to death in order to obey this text, which says, don't pray for that. Well, you can't obey that unless you can see and know your sin leads to death. Your sin does not lead to death. Okay? You have to be able to see that and to know that. And my primary question here is, if this is referring to the unpardonable sin, 
how can we know that someone has committed the unpardonable sin? You in your own experience have seen so many people so deeply immersed in blasphemies of God and the Holy Spirit and in sin, even those growing up in Christian backgrounds who've entirely renounced all of that, gone off into all sorts of apostasies and then have come to Christ and they're sitting in this room and they're genuine believers and they bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit and they will be in paradise forever. If you saw them 20 years ago, you might have thought, you are sinning unto death, unpardonable sin, and yet you're wrong because clearly that had not happened. So again, the unpardonable sin is something, and we could talk about what it is. It is something, but my question is, how would anyone obey this passage? Because to obey this passage, you have to be able to discern, or at least the early church here had to be able to discern when someone had committed the unpardonable sin. I don't know how anyone would ever know that. It's not like a mark appears on your forehead to indicate that you had committed the unpardonable sin. Peter himself, the apostle, was privileged to be within Jesus' closest three, and then at the end of three years with Jesus, so you don't get more privileged than that, at the end of three years, he denied three times that he even knew the man the last time with oaths and cursings. So if anyone has ever sinned against the light, well, it was Peter. Was that a sin unto death? You would think so, but no. Judas's, I guess we could call it that, not Peter's. Peter was restored. So how would we know the difference between someone who's committed this? There are many people who would take, in fact, the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to be nothing other than you refusing to believe in Christ all the way until you die. Because, of course, you die not believing in Christ, you can't be pardoned. And that is true. So even if that's the case, if that's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, as many people think, then what would this passage possibly mean? Don't pray for that if someone died as an unbeliever. Don't pray that they become a believer after they died. It wouldn't make any sense. For these reasons... To begin with, I don't think that our passage is talking about the unpardonable sin. I don't know how it could actually be obeyed if it was talking about the unpardonable sin. So then the question becomes, what is he talking about? Let me give you the second view, which is my own. I believe that John in this passage is referring to, when he says a sin that leads to death, is referring to sin that God is disciplining or punishing with earthly consequences, including physical sickness and even physical death. Now, let me give you a parallel. If this is true, then we shouldn't look to Mark 3 and Hebrews 6 to explain this passage. But instead, I want to show you a parallel in James chapter 5. That if this is true, is saying, saying almost the same thing. If the sin leading to death, we don't pray for that, refers to a person in the Christian community sinning unrepentantly, getting sick, experiencing consequences, perhaps even dying physically, don't pray for that. If that's what's being referred to here, then James chapter 5 tells us the same thing. Let me read it to you. This is verses 14 through 16. Is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, means heal him, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He will give him life, is what our passage says. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Sin not leading to death, pray will be given life. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Let's be very clear that not all sickness comes from sin. Please just read the book of Job and you immediately know that that is true. Job's sickness did not. But we also need to be clear that in the New Testament, there is some sickness. There are physical consequences at times, sometimes, that have their origin in sin, that are a way of God disciplining His own people, or even at times meeting out punishment to His enemies, but here disciplining His own people. If you don't believe this, let me give you one line given to us in 1 Corinthians that proves it. Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the fact that they are misusing the Lord's Supper. They're not loving each other when they take communion. And Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's rather serious. James also is assuming that some sickness comes as discipline from the Lord for sins. He says that if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So he's sick, not always, but if he has committed sins that led to that sickness, he'll not only be healed, but he'll be forgiven. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. James says, what do you do if there is such a sickness here? The answer is, someone has a sickness that came from sin. The answer is pray. And notice that's the same answer that's given in our passage. In James, he says, if someone has a sickness that came from sin, then go to the elders, have the elders anoint you with oil, and pray for you. But then after that, he extends it even further to the whole body of Christ. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And when you come to 1 John chapter 5, that's exactly the same thing that he's saying here. If you find someone who's sinning, it's not unto death, they've repented of it, then pray for them and God will, through your prayer, give them life. The difference between the first view of this passage and this is how you take death. In the first view, death is eternal death. Life is eternal life. In this view of the passage, death is referring to physical death and life is referring to physical life, just as James chapter 5 is talking about. He shall ask. That's the command. James says, pray. First John says, Ask, and he will be given life. We'll give him life. This helps us make sense of the most shocking part of our passage, which is when John commands you not to pray. Perhaps you didn't think the Bible ever commanded you not to pray. Technically, he doesn't command you not to pray, but he doesn't command you to pray. He says, I don't say one should pray for that, the sin that leads to death. Now, I know we're getting deep in the weeds here, but there's no other way around this passage, so bear with me. I want to point out at this point a piece of grammar in our text. 
you might be shocked when he says, okay, there's a sin that leads to death. I don't say you should pray for that. What in the world? Am I not supposed to pray for this person? That's not actually what he says. If you notice exactly what he says, he doesn't say there's a sin that leads to death. I don't say you should pray for the one committing that sin. Specifically, what he says is there's a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. And in the Greek, there's no way to read that except that that is referring to the sin. Don't pray something concerning that sin. A sin that leads to death would be one in which a person commits a clear sin as a believer, receives earthly consequences for persisting in that sin, refusing to repent. God gives his good fatherly discipline. It may include physical illness. It may, 1 Corinthians we saw, you may even die as God's good fatherly discipline in the life of a believer who's straying away. And John says, if you have someone whose sin is on the trajectory toward that physical death as discipline, they're deteriorating, earthly consequences are intensifying, don't get in God's way by coming in and saying, God, uh, please help them not to be sick and not to experience any of the earthly consequences that you're giving to them to help them to repent. Clear them all. Give them a good, healthy, prosperous life. You can see why you wouldn't pray that. Because these are part of God's discipline that lead to repentance. As painful as these things are, I think what John is saying is don't pray for someone who's not repenting of their sin. Don't pray that their earthly consequences would be removed because they need those consequences to urge them to repent of their sin. God's discipline is always painful, but it is necessary. It is good for us. We need that. We don't want to remove that. Sometimes this is like a parent when you have a teenage child and they do something you warn them not to do and then they face the consequences of doing that very thing. And part of your parental impulse is you want to step in and get rid of the hard consequences for them. But the other part of your parental wisdom says, I probably should let them experience these consequences for their good. I think that's what's happening in this passage. If someone has a sin that is pointed toward the physical consequence of death, it's pointed there because you're not repenting of it, God says, just let it keep going there unless they repent. Don't pray for that. Don't pray for that sin that leads to death. Don't pray that the consequences of it will be removed. Allow it to continue. Pray for those instead who repent that they may be healed in keeping with James chapter 5. Okay, you still here? What does this mean practically, if that's so, for you? Because maybe you're reading this, thinking about this, and already the oddities come to your mind, like, does this mean now if I'm sick or I have a disease, everybody else at this church is going to start thinking that's coming from some sin I committed. They're going to stop praying for my healing. <laughs> no, look, I already said not all sickness comes from sin. <laughs> my wife and I both have diseases. Many, many people here have diseases. Keep praying for us, okay? I think what protects us from that kind of oddity, because many people have been hurt by that, what protects us from that is the beginning of our passage when he says, if anyone sees a brother, and then talks about the sin. 
to see the brother sinning, this sin or that sin, again, it has to be clear. What we're not talking about here and what John cannot be talking about here are things that maybe you're uncertain, like maybe it's sinful, so maybe I won't pray for their healing because maybe it's from there. It's not to leave you walking away from here going like, wow, man, is my arthritis coming from the fact of this or this or this? I'm not kind enough or something. This is talking about a clear sin. So this wouldn't be, for example, if tomorrow Halloween comes and you may have in your conscience the feeling that not only the moral evils of Halloween, but even the costumes and candy are complicity in the evils of Halloween, and therefore, you're not going to celebrate it, that's fine. Do what your conscience leads you to do. But the other mom that you know, she lets her kids go trick-or-treating, and then next week, she catches a cold. You say, I'm not going to pray because you let your kids go trick-or-treating. That is not what we're talking about here. We don't have to become suspicious of everyone if they're sick in any way. Is this because you've sinned somehow? No. If, he says, if you see your brother in a sin, that means it's clear, okay? So a better application of this, for example, would be some man who commits adultery. He's confronted by the church. Don't do this. Repent of this evil sin. You've abandoned your family. You've violated the covenant. But he persists in adultery. So church discipline, of course, would be a piece of what's happening here. But as he's persisting in this clear sin, the trajectory with no repentance is a sin that leads to death. And let's say he experiences difficult circumstances as a consequence. Sometimes God allows those circumstances to be the natural outflow of the sin, sexually transmitted diseases or what have you. Sometimes they're just discipline that God himself gives, he gets in a car crash or he gets sick, he's becoming very ill. And this passage says, for that person, you're loving that person, you're praying for that person's repentance, you're urging that person to repentance, and this passage says, while you do that, don't pray that God would remove the consequences the person's experiencing. Maybe that seems mean. It's not mean. God is the good shepherd with his rod and his staff, and you have to get out of the way. Don't do anything mean to them. But if God's doing something in their life to push them to repentance, you get out of the way. You do pray for them, because he says don't pray for that, the sin. But you do pray for them, but you pray that they'd repent. You pray the hard circumstances in their life would lead them to repentance, that they'd be restored. And if they repent, then guess what? They now become the brother sinning that leads to not death. Because now you pray for them and God will give them life. Now we, James 5, we pray for them to be healed. We pray that the consequences might be removed because they have repented of their sin. The point of this passage is you pray for those who've repented that they'd be restored even from consequences, not for those who haven't repented yet. Notice that this does set apart, and part of us as Christians feels at first like, that's kind of mean. Because, you know, as believers, we're called to pray even for those who persecute us. And you say, well, what am I praying for those who persecute me? Like, Lord, dash them upon the rocks. You can't just pray the imprecatory psalms for them. When Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you, part of that is you're praying for their welfare. Or in the Old Testament, when God's people were taken to Babylon into captivity, into an evil pagan nation, God commanded them through Jeremiah, 
seek the welfare of that city. But it's a city full of pagans. Shouldn't we pray that God destroy it and make life hard, that they all would repent? It shows us that there's a distinction to be made. When you're praying for lost people, you should also pray that God would be gracious. You can pray for your lost neighbor's lost dog. Pray the dog comes back. Don't say, I'm not praying because you haven't repented. You can pray that. Pray for the welfare of our city, even if many people aren't believers. That's fine. We're talking about a unique case here where someone is part of the Christian community. They're part of the church. They claim to be a believer. They enter into a clear sin that they will not repent of. And God says, just let the consequences be. Don't pray against them. They're meant to lead to repentance. The moment the person repents, then we pray for healing. Then we pray for the easing of all consequences because then the consequences have had their good effect. So those are the two views, okay? And I personally think the second makes more sense of the text. It's a lot like James chapter 5. You may yourself think that the first makes more sense and that is completely fine. But I think it's the second one here. But whether you take the first or the second view of this passage, there's something that's incredibly clear regardless, and it is that you cannot come away from a passage like this without a sense that sin is very serious. Sin is more serious than we take it today in our culture, in our society. We don't naturally think of sin as this serious. It's one of the reasons a passage like this is very shocking. That's why I look at verse 17. This is a part of the point he's making, quote, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Why does John add that final comment here? Of course, all wrongdoing is sin. I think it's because he's just made a, he's just distinguished between a sin that leads to death and one that doesn't. And you might be tempted from that to think, which is actually what's happened within Catholicism, you might be tempted within that to think, well, there's some sins that are a really big deal, and then there's the other sins we commit, they don't lead to death, they're not a huge deal. And so John, to prevent you from thinking that, says, now listen, all wrongdoing is sin. Just like in chapter 2, look, there's a propitiation for our sins, but I am writing this so you wouldn't sin. I want you to take this seriously. All wrongdoing, sin to death, sin not to death, it's all sin, all wrongdoing. But he says, but there is a sin that doesn't lead to death, okay? There is a distinction here. But he wants you to take sin incredibly seriously. All sin is serious sin. Even sins that don't lead to death in our passage have as a consequence sickness. Because he says, pray for them that they might have life. Healing That's how I take that. And those are sins not leading to death. You remember that in the early days of the church, in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira were a couple in the Christian community and they sold a piece of property and they conspired together that they would give part of the money to the apostles for the help of the poor, but they were going to lie and keep just a little bit for themselves. They could have kept it all from themselves. There's no command that they had to give it, but they conspired to lie to the apostles and they went to the apostles And God killed them. This is in the new covenant age of which we are a part. God killed them immediately. Ananias and then Sapphira. They took them out back and they buried them. And if you remember in the book of Acts, Luke records 
and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And that was exactly the right response. Great fear. If you could never imagine God taking someone's life as discipline for their sin, then you've misunderstood God on that point. The apostle who writes our passage is the same one who two times wrote, God is love. We're not talking about a mean God. We're talking about the God who is love, taking sin so seriously that for a believer, he's willing to put a believer to death to bring an end to unrepented of sin. Sin is far worse than death. So even on Halloween, those two kinds of evils that are celebrated, moral evils and natural evils like death, the moral evils are the bad ones. Natural evils, we don't like those, death. But it's the moral evils, the occult, everything anti-God, immorality, pride. Those evils are 10 million times worse than death. Death is a consequence of those evils. But those evils are grotesque. This is like the lead pastor of the church I attended as a child in California. He used to pray with his elders this prayer. Lord, if any of the men around this table are going to commit a grievous sin that will bring shame on your name and disrepute to the gospel, if any of us are going to do that, we sincerely ask that you would take away our life before we do. That's a good prayer. It's the same as what we sing, and I sing this with deep meaning when Bernard of Clairvaux in the ancient church wrote the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, the last stanza we sing says, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. And ideally, that means my love for the Lord goes on and I live a long time, but it also means if my love for you is failing and I'm going to sin grievously, don't let me outlive it. Take away my life. That's not a bad prayer. Death is nothing compared to the grotesqueness and the evil of our sins. And I hope that Halloween will remind us that our sin is foul. The guilt of it is cleared, but as believers, it is foul. We ought to pray with the prophet, let me die the death of the upright. It is better that I perish if I will not repent of my sin, that my flesh be destroyed so that my soul may be saved. Death is a light thing compared to sin. And may God grant us to see that in this passage so that we take sin very seriously, repent of it very quickly, that we may have life.